Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast, the podcast about creativity and making a living in the arts. This episode of the podcast features a conversation with TV producer and film writer and director Adam Horton. Before we get into it, I'd just like to play you a bit of this. Listening, hear me, I may not pass this way again. Begin at the beginning, you were here to pass the time. The sound of a sleeping city made you feel alive. A thousand hearts and caring, afraid to meet you right. A single point of reference that you were trying to find, though it was all you had, you were still sad. You never will look back. You never had to hide. That was a sample of my new song, Listen In, which was released on the 1st of August. You can get access to a free download of the song by joining my mailing list. I'm also running an ultimate mixtape challenge. Create a listen-in playlist with my new song Listen In as the first track on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube or wherever you listen to your music. Send me a link or a photo of your playlist and I'll share it. There's a prize for the mixtape I think has the best songs. There's details of all of that on my website, robertlaymusic.co.uk, where you will also find information about this podcast and the previous guests I've spoken to. I've been getting some great feedback about the podcast and it's fantastic to hear from you. It'd mean a lot to me if you could subscribe, rate and review it on your preferred podcast provider as doing that encourages the algorithms to push it to more people. It's also very handy when I'm talking to potential future guests as it shows that people are listening. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Adam Horton. Hi Adam, how are you? Yeah, good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well. Very well, thank you. How has... I'm asking this to everybody. It's probably a boring question now. How has lockdown and Zoom meetings and all of this stuff affected your line of work day to day? Has it or has it not particularly? Well, it's been so luckily sort of I work in um, sort of, you know, entertainment TV, which has not been as badly affected as, say, scripted. Okay. So, you know, scripted, obviously, you need to get a crew together. You need, you know, unless like the... um, the David Tennant uh, kind of Michael Sheen drama that's been on and which is all recorded over Zoom. Other than doing that, you know, their sort of situation has been completely shut down. But we uh, managed to produce a whole um, lockdown show with Russell Howard for Sky One, which was sort of done entirely remotely. And as you see, a lot of the US chat shows have managed to keep going through, through lockdown. Um, so it has been affected, of course, but not as bad as it has been in other areas of, of TV and film. Mm. And in terms of meetings and getting stuff happening then, is having to do it remotely and via Zoom advantageous in some ways compared to getting the tube across London for a 10-minute a meeting that might not go the way you want anyway? Um, I always prefer a face-to-face meeting um, and I prefer sort of working, getting up and getting out of the house and mm. going to an office and things like that. Um, so, you know, so some things have taken longer, some things have been a bit easier. So, you know, in terms of um, getting meetings in with various companies, uh, because everyone's stuck at home, there's no excuse why you can't do it now. Cool. And I wanted to talk just a little bit then about the, the general hustle of working in, in film and TV and the arts generally. So like with the work that you've done, getting your own films made and, you know, getting the funding for that sort of stuff, as well as the, the TV that you've worked on, how much of that has been down to just hustling away people that you knew from a different project and kind of been in the right place at the right time? Um, yeah, loads of it is, is basically about hustling, you know. Um, the the best bit of advice I ever got about how to get into um, TV was I got in college, and this could have saved me 
you know, four years of university and masses of student debt um, because it's the, the only thing that worked. And basically my old film studies teacher, she said, the easiest way to get on a set if you don't have any family or friend connections is sign up to be an extra and then go do that because then you can sit around all the time. You can watch the various uh, departments on a set. Uh, you can see what you like the look of and then, then you know, swap numbers with a crew member. Um, and that's basically exactly what I did. Um, and, and and sort of everything has came from that. Um, but, you know, uh, after getting that advice, I still did four years of uni, uh, <laughs> and, you know, still paying off the student loans. Um, when really uh, 18 years old, I should have just gone and done that. Uh, then and there instead of waiting until I was 21, 22. Um, and, but everything, what you find is everything comes from uh, people, you know, you've, you've met. So, as you know, I started off, um, you know, I did the extras thing and then would swap numbers with people and then that would lead to a job and then that would lead to a job. And I sort of, I gave loads of different departments uh, a go first. So I, I did a bit of art department. I did a bit of locations. I did a bit of assistant directing, um, you know, to give everything a little bit of a sampling um, before I decided what to go into. What grabbed you about the jobs that you've ended up doing then in particular? Because I think a lot of people listening in who aren't that aware would not necessarily know what the differences are between, say, a director and a producer and a TV show. So how do you explain those and what sort of led you in a particular direction? Um, so yeah, and do you know what they mean different things across different genres as well. Um, so I started I, initially. Uh, I started in scripted and in film. Um, you know, as an as an assistant director, which is basically as a third assistant director, which is basically you're wrangling the extras mm. uh, and you sort of direct the background. That's kind of your thing, um, as well as making sure actors get in and out of uh, makeup on time and stuff like that. Um, uh, you know, so I, I started doing that, but re my real ambition is that I write and direct with my brother. Uh, and so directing is really my main passion. But what I did was I ended up taking a sidestep um, away from drama and scripted uh, and stepped into the world of entertainment. Um, I, I kind of went on to working on like Britain's Got Talent uh, and The X Factor initially, which are obviously a completely different type of thing. Um, but as I've discovered, being an entertainment producer is the closest thing to being a scripted director that isn't being a scripted director. Um, you use a lot of the same skill sets, whereas a, so a producer in entertainment um, is nothing like a producer in, in scripted. Um, you know, they're sort of very different skill sets. Could you expand on that a little bit for us then? Uh, yeah, so um, I guess so you know, typically a producer in scripted are there, you know, they help birth a project, they'll see it through development, they'll help organise getting the financing together. Um, you know, that's kind of what they're, they're doing. And they might be with a project for 10 years. Mm. Whereas um, a producer in the TV entertainment world, you, you sort of parachute in um, and you work usually directly with the talent um and they they use the phrase producing them up and producing them up it, it's just another word for direct you know it's the right. same thing as if you're directing an actor um so it's just getting the best out of the on-camera talent um and also it's a lot more of a um i'd say producer in the tv entertainment world is a lot more vaguer less defined role it can mean different things for different productions um you know so uh you know you can end up producing say um the uh, kind of segments outside of a uh, outside of a studio setting mm -hmm. um and so that can mean uh, that, so then that is essentially you are acting as a director then you're kind of directing a camera crew um you're working with the on-screen uh, talent um you know i work to produce uh, a lot of chat shows i've done that so what you there they're doing is you know um my job is to sort of get the best out of the interview subject. So that means doing your research, you know, doing a pre-interview to, to get the juiciest stories out of them um, and, and making sure that they're kind of uh, the, the person who's being interviewed is uh, in the best frame of mind possible and, uh, and up for having some fun. And I guess that varies a lot 
depending on who that person is and where they are in life and career and also just what they're there for, what they're promoting or what they're plugging. That's exactly it. Yeah, sort of, you know, producing talk shows. um, What's good is, uh, I mean, I think the major part of that is preparing. So watching as many interviews with them as possible, listening to as many podcasts with them and really getting a sense of who that person is. So you can sort of manage expectations of what they will deliver on screen. Um, what uh, you know, and that's kind of the purpose of doing pre-interviews with people as well, is to get their comfort zones, uh, maybe establish a little bit of rapport, um, and and sort of just finding what they respond to and what they're going to be interested in talking about. Because that's mm-hmm. the thing is, you know, some people, uh, some celebs uh, for a talk show, they've got they're like a greatest hits collection of anecdotes. Yep. So, you know, so you Will Smiths, you know, of the world, you can see him. Um, you know, telling his anecdotes on podcasts and various, you know, chat shows from around the world. And he's just got a Rolodex of them that are all logged. He knows how to tell them. He's going to deliver them well, uh, you know, and he's going to be amazing, you know, at doing that. Whereas other guests maybe sort of don't want to do the same stories over and over Mm. again, and you've got to mine them for sort of new material. So which is better from your point of view then? Because I imagine it's it's exciting to have something that hasn't been said before, but then there must be a, a safety in the idea that you know if someone comes on and they're going to do the business and they're going to be entertaining. Your audience might not have seen all of those stories before, but you know you're going to get a good show out of them. So which which do you prefer? Um, the sort of the ideal scenario is someone who will give you a bit of both. Yes. Um, so if you're kind of, so you, you, you might have a couple of greatest hits anecdotes <laughs> in there as like a, you know, that are a safety net, but, um, you know, the dream thing is that you do a pre-interview and they give you a, a, a piece of information that they haven't revealed anywhere else. So then that can become your set piece, you know, anecdote. Um, and so, you know, some interview subjects really prepare well for that. You know, some mm. of them prepare, they, they know they're doing a talk show appearance. They want to be entertaining and they've had a pre think about it all. And they're like, I've been thinking about this, this, and this, and this happened. And I think this is a good story. Um, so that's really handy. Mm. Um, and then, you know, it's obviously great as well when you can just have kind of an open chat with someone, uh, but that feels a bit more like a podcasty yep. chat because then it can range and it can expand. And if you go down a dead end, it's, it doesn't, um, you don't suffer so much. Whereas, uh, you know, on a talk show, if you go down a dead end, uh, you know, it can clam you clam the guest up for the whole rest of the, you know, the night. And with say the Graham Norton show, it's quite interesting as well, because you'll tend to have a couple of really big stars sat on that sofa together and i what you've just said is interesting because if one of them isn't having the best time or doesn't feel that comfortable it's not just that they're not having the best time they're not having the best time where they're sat next to potentially one of their massive heroes or someone they've never met before or never worked with or someone you know so that must make it tricky as well is it are they in competition sometimes for the guests in terms of that trying to be as entertaining as possible uh, you, do you know what? You definitely get a little bit of competition. You kind of hope for a little bit of competition, I would say, sometimes, because you kind of want want to bring out the show off in them. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you sort of, you know, I think what sort of becomes apparent, uh, you know, sometimes is that obviously they're massive stars, but they're almost, they're all, they, they're often, you know, former drama students. Mm-hmm. And everyone knows what the drama students were like at your college. They were singing in the hallways, they were dancing, they were doing all that stuff, looking for an opportunity to kind of show off. Um, And so you you sort of try and bring that out in them a little bit as well, I would say. So, yeah, a little bit of healthy competition of of who can be the funniest is good. Um, But it's also very good. You know, you want a generous laugher and, you know, people who are interested in each other's anecdotes. Uh, That's the best. When you get that alchemy of chemistry on a on a chat show where you've got more than one guest like Graham Norton, you know, yeah. that's kind of what you're after. So tell me then, it occasionally happens, very rarely I know, uh, such a professional show as that, but it occasionally happens where it's not great and the guest isn't necessarily giving uh, anything, <laughs> perhaps doesn't particularly want to be there. Is that clear from the pre-interview or does sometimes it surprise you in the real thing? And does it go the other way? Is somebody quite difficult sometimes in the pre-interview and then they're great on the night? 
Um, I would say, I'd say it's kind of interesting how the audience interprets some of those moments mm. compared to how you know it was backstage. So someone can be interpreted as being sort of um, grumpy or, or not giving very much, whereas you know, actually, you know, having, you know, worked on the show and done all the prep and then met them and all that, you know, you just kind of know that's who they are as a person. So it's not that they, they, they can be perfectly happy to sit there um, yeah. and they just don't necessarily give much, you know, um, uh, sort of, yeah, it, you know, so it kind of, it definitely, um, it's always interesting looking at audience reactions to certain things and you go, I never thought of it like that. And then you see what people are saying on mm-hmm. Twitter and they're kind of spinning their own little narrative about it. Um, so yeah, I find that kind of it's that's interesting from a producer's perspective. So you mentioned the projects that you write and direct with your brother Joe. So I'm interested, mm. having worked in broadcast TV and working as an independent writer and director, mm-hmm. how would you sum up both of those worlds? Is broadcast TV in a in a strong place? Is it a good time to be an independent filmmaker? How related to each other are they? Um, to be an independent filmmaker, do you know what I always? I was thinking about this the other day. Um, uh, I was thinking, remember the quote? Remember when um, in Jerry Maguire, when Tom Cruise says to Cuba Gooding Jr., "Working for you um, is a up at the crack of dawn, pride swallowing siege that I'll never fully tell you about." <laughs> to me, that's independent filmmaking. Uh, <laughs> It's just so, it's so difficult. It's so energy draining. Um, I think, you know, this podcast is about creativity and uh, it can beat the creativity out of you a little bit because I think, uh, you know, a key thing for creativity is fun Mm -hmm. and being able to play and being able to access those parts of you. And when you're sort of on your 15th draft of a script that you were once really enthusiastic Mm -hmm. about, but now has been talked to death. It can definitely feel like all the fun has uh, has been, you know, sapped out of it. Um, but you know, there's nothing more satisfying than than when you actually see the final product on screen and it's in front of an audience and they're reacting how you wanted them to react. That's you know probably the most satisfying thing. And I think everyone, when you look at any old interview with any old filmmaker, they always go, "Oh, this is a terrible time to be." getting into it this is a terrible time and so i don't think it's ever i don't think it's ever been easy um and so yeah so i think i think it's probably just as difficult as it's always been um but the challenges of being an independent filmmaker are different in some ways it's easier you know we've all got iphones that shoot pretty good quality video you can do some pretty decent stuff on that um so you know so from that perspective it's good but then from the other perspective there's more competition than ever you know, you've got film schools churning out graduates year on year and, you know, mm. you can go on to make a film, who knows? Um, so that's tricky. But then, you know, in terms of um, TV, uh, in terms of broadcast TV and entertainment, um, you know, it feels in a very good place, I think. Um, yeah, um, obviously tr- tricky during the whole pandemic thing, you know, re- work has been reduced for everyone. But aside, putting that to aside, I think... Um, Broadcast and entertainment's in a pretty good state, and that as well, given the the competition from streaming and all the rest of it, and and then as you mentioned, all those people who are making stuff themselves. I think it's as you say, the technology is available for people more, and also it's possible to get something out because you can put it on YouTube and whatever it is, or even Amazon Prime as an independent filmmaker, whatever. But then, as you say, Ooh. everybody in the world can do that, so there's so much more competition. I used to compare it to when I was first in bands and stuff. And you suddenly got MySpace going, right? And it's like, this is brilliant. Anyone in the world can listen to my music. And then you think, yeah, but you're not just competing with all the bands in Birmingham anymore. It's all the bands in the world. And then with Spotify, it's all the bands who've ever existed. So it's it's brilliant. If you can find that audience, I think it's it's great because you can communicate directly with them without needing any of the gatekeepers that you used to need. Whether that's the same in film, I imagine that it is because you can build an audience on your own terms a little bit but it's just finding those people in the first place when there's so much noise. And that must be the same for broadcast TV as well. There's so many competitors for everybody's attention, whether it's to the TV or just just stuff, I guess. 
I get yes, I think so. But you know what you find is um, entertainment stuff lives so well online. Yeah. So if it doesn't find its home, you know, doesn't do very well viewer wise necessarily on its broadcast date. The YouTube clips might, and the clips that you put on Facebook or Instagram, you know, uh, that can be where you find the audience. Um, and I think you know everyone loves sharing a clip and so many of those like like you say the little graham norton stories mm. or the things that we've done with russell howard they, they get so shared because they that that talent has such a um a, you know a feverish kind of fan base mm-hmm. um so that just helps helps you out um you know p- people consume stuff in different day- ways and you just got to embrace it i think mm. um i was watching chump earlier and I loved the oh, yeah. thing that you mentioned in the description of it about well, how would you put it that it was a standard far beyond our budget, which yeah, I guess okay. is something that really um, could be a <laughs> could be a motto for so many independent creatives. I think, but it's surely the case in filmmaking. So talk us through that one. How did that happen? So that's for anyone who hasn't seen that, they should go and watch it. It's a it's a short about two zombies basically. And they are very convincing, pretty horrible zombies eating a pretty convincing cadaver. So how do you achieve that with a a smallish budget? Yeah. So that, yeah. So I think that's always been our kind of philosophy as filmmakers is to kind of punch above our our weight Mm -hmm. in terms of what we can afford. Um, And Sean, yeah, we shot that for 1,500 pounds in total, I think including post um and um you know part of it's just finding a good a good decent location um uh luckily nottingham has a few um post-apocalyptic looking streets (laughs) so that's that's handy (laughs) um you know their decline is our advantage uh, as filmmakers um so yeah so it's just sort of taking advantage of things like that getting the best actors you can you know i've never been afraid to sort of you know, swing big and ask for, you know, um, well-established and working actors like uh, uh, in Chomp, that's Mark Pickering, who plays, um, he was in Boardwalk Empire, actually. He played the young Steve Buscemi um, in the sort of flashbacks in that. Um, and so, you know, getting good quality actors and, you know, there's, there's, there's so many good quality creative people uh, and it's just bringing them all together to believe the same thing um and and that sort of gets you and also cinematographers as well get yourself a good cinematographer who knows what they're doing um and who's going to bring some passion to it i think that's the main thing if people think oh i'll just do this i mean they're not doing it for pay because there is the you know that was kind of like an expenses only thing um but yeah, just you know, you want to uh, get a group of people together who've got something to prove uh, and who are really good at what they do. And you mentioned sort of casting and talent and stuff. So, mm. has the whole Graham Norton and those other experiences helped with that? Do you think because you've had some quite notable people involved in things? So Rick Mail on the, yeah, the other side of the afterlife. That's quite a big ask. I'd have thought if you're approaching someone like that cold, whether you'd worked with him before or had some contact before, I don't know, but. No, um, uh, so yeah, Rick Mayo, uh, he was kind of like a childhood hero of ours. Uh, and when we wrote the wrote the script for um, This Side of the Afterlife, you know, it's like a Roald Dahl rhyming fairy tale, a bit like, a little bit Tim Burton-esque, a bit Edgar Allan Poe-ish. And we were just like, if, who would your dream person be, you know, to sort of do the voiceover for this? And we were like, well, everyone remembers Rick's, you know, Jack and Ori's and things like that that he used to do. Um and so we're like, well, it's not, you know, um, it's not like he's been doing loads and loads. I was like, we should just ask him. And mm. we, we, so what we did, we sort of raised a bit of money out of our own pocket and asked him to do it for, for pittance, really, just a couple hundred quid. Um, and, you know, he, his agent engaged, he engaged, he liked the script and was just kind of up for doing it. Um, so that's, that was literally just getting a hold of his agent's details and putting the ask in and hoping he responded to the material. Um, and then in terms of working on, you know, uh, on Graham Norton, a lot of people have said, oh, why don't you slip? You know, well, <laughs> uh, I produced um, an interview with Harvey Weinstein uh, on there when, you know, before he was uh, tainted and in prison. <laughs> you'd, have been, you'd have been brave to do it after he was tainted. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. But I remember so many uh, like friends going, just slip him a script for this, slip him a script for that. And you're just like, 
is one that one I don't believe that tactic's ever going to work really mm-hmm. um, because how many times do they get um, given stuff like that? Um, and also, it's not the right context to do it, and you just have to separate. I have to separate those two professions really mm-hmm. um, in terms of my directing ambitions and. Uh, you know, scripts I've written with maybe talent that I'm producing for for a, an interview because you, you might have written something that's perfect for Tom Cruise, but giving it to him backstage is not the way that it's going to get noticed and it's only going to make you lose the other job. So, yeah, yeah it, it's a no-win situation. Is it tempting, though? Because you, you're going back to that hustle thing, I suppose, which it's interesting. I wonder if there's a lot of people who are working in a sort of broadcast tv whatever it is for the bbc type of situation but then doing their own i hate the idea of a side hustle because it's not that it's much more important than that but you know something other than that which is yeah kind of similar so it it must be a difficult temptation you know and it's it's (laughs) i think it's prescient for all of us because we all want to be taking these opportunities but we also don't want to be well i suppose we don't care about upsetting people but we don't want to be burning bridges before we've built them maybe Exactly, yeah. And I think it depends what medium you're working in. So if I was on scripted, if I was on a scripted drama or something for, you know, weeks or months with the same crap cast, you're developing that rapport with the actors on, right. a, on hopefully a personal level perhaps, um, then, you know, in that scenario, you know, I'd be sort of tempted to maybe, you know, talk, you know, because hopefully you'd end up talking about your scripts and stuff with them anyway. Um and then, you know, I would sort of, I would take the risk on it. And I definitely have used people who, who I was like a runner, again, swap numbers with the actor because I liked what they were doing and said, look, if I was ever doing something, would you mind if I sent this to your agent again? Because then at least if you're offering rather than giving it to them, you're saying, can I give it to your agent? If they want you to give it direct to them, they will. Yeah. If not, you've, you've, you're doing it the right way around anyway. Um, you know, so in that situation, I think, yes, I, w- I would hustle, but not, um, you know, when someone's in promo mode for, you know, for a big blockbuster or something like that, the last thing they want to do is get served with a script. Uh, you know, um, uh, yeah, it's just not the, it's just not the right scenario to get it done. I don't think. Although, although it's brief, you will find yourself in some interesting situations with people. Tell us about Margot Robbie. Um, so yeah, so. Well, that's what I, (laughs) so I wondered if you'd asked me to do this podcast because of the Margot Robbie clip, because that, that was been an odd thing. So on Graham Norton, you know, um, I was producing Margot Robbie's interview. Um, and I found out that she gives amateur tattoos, uh, usually at parties, presumably when drunk. Um, and that she she tattooed the Suicide Squad cast with you know um, the Suicide Squad smiley face, um, and so uh, I suggested perhaps we get her to do that on air uh, with someone from the um, from the audience, uh, and then it was just quickly became apparent that that would be quite complex, uh, and that the easiest way to get her to give an on air tattoo would be if I was willing to sacrifice my own foot. Uh, and have the tattoo myself and you know i was i was straight i i jumped at the chance no problem <laughs> no problem at all um and so so yeah so so it worked out really well but it's just very funny um because that clip comes up a lot mm. um it, you know it gets edited down and shared for i don't know when it's like her birthday and things like that and <laughs> it, it did really well with the sort of great Norton audience um and so i've had a lot of like you know, people contacted me on social media, you know, a lot of sort of strange foot fetishists and things like that. Oh, um, I'm missing the opportunity for a podcast, the Foot Fetishist podcast. I guess that must already exist, but, you know, there's an audience for everything. They are out there. <laughs> they are out there, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Keen for content, I would say. Um, <laughs> um but yeah, so you know, so that bit becomes like a sort of surreal situation because I didn't come up with the idea so I could do it. It's just kind of how how it turned out. And the thing is, when you've come up with an idea to happen on a chat show, you really want to see it happen. Yeah. Um, so you sort of do anything because of those moments that do go viral. You want you want them to happen. Um, so yeah, so if it means you know stepping up yourself and having to do it. Um, you know, and on that couch, it was like it was Reese Witherspoon and uh, Ryan Reynolds and Harrison Ford, 
and uh, and you know it's, it's you know Margot Robbie, Reese Witherspoon, and uh, Ryan Reynolds are all sort of within my age range, mm-hmm. so they feel like contemporaries. Whereas it's someone like Harrison Ford, who's like a childhood hero. He's Han Solo for God's. Indiana Jones just sat there, yeah. Yeah, he's Han Solo. He's Indiana Jones. He's Deckard. You know, he's he's sort of a walking icon. Uh, and they're the, you know that's sort of who I was kind of more um, uh, intimidated by or nervous about on on set. Uh, <laughs> you know, during that moment, whilst being tattooed. Yeah, that's mad. Yeah, yeah. better than an yeah, autograph, it, I suppose. Better than a, yeah, better than an autograph. It's very funny because they, you know, on that clip, uh, Graham Berry sells it as as that I'm like this huge Margot Robbie fan, uh, and you know I think Margot Robbie's great, but I don't have posters of her on my wall. Do you know what I mean? Um, uh, which is, I think, you know, sort of maybe how I how I came across or how I was sold. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's more your um, yeah, it's more you kind of like Harrison Ford, so you go. Uh, yeah, I've sort of grown up with you. Yeah, I don't know a time without you. Yeah, you know, being sort of an, an iconic trigger. Um, so it's always nice when those people turn out to be nice. <laughs> There's something different about. I'm, I, I imagine it's just you know age and legacy and stuff but there's something about people from that kind of era who've had that amount of great stuff so Harrison Ford's I don't know if you're involved in this one but the Python guys when they're on the Graham Norton show and it's just like that must be quite surreal and someone who's famous is famous but someone who is a Python or is Indiana Jones or I think Tom Hanks probably falls into that category as well they're just such a part of all of our lives for so many different things must be strange yes. to be in a room with them. Yes, yeah. Well, the Pythons, actually, that was another one that I um, worked on the interview for um, and then subsequently got to do John Cleese by himself as well and massive, you know, massive heroes of mine. And, you know, John Cleese, again, he's a fascinating one because what's great with him, you can just engage him because he's such a good, um, a good intellect. You can engage him on any topic and it becomes quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so it was very weird, you know, having, you've basically got the Beatles of comedy all in a room together and, you know, because they're all old and obviously since, uh, since then, um, uh, you know, obviously one of them's died, uh, and, uh, Terry Jones Mm -hmm. and, you know, so, you know, it's a fleeting thing, you know, it might not happen again. Yeah. And I was sort of very, um, you know, kind of, you know, meeting these types of people, you know, you can ask, you know, maybe ask for a cheeky autograph, a cheeky selfie or that type of thing. And for the most part, I've been very strict about not doing that. But when it comes to older ones, so you're like, I don't know how many times I'll get to potentially work with you or, yeah. you know, do something like this with you. Then I've kind of kind of broke my own rule a little bit. Um, and so, yeah, John, John Cleese, I did get to sign a Ministry of Silly Walks picture um Robert De Niro I did get to sign a Mean Streets uh, limited edition <laughs> Mean Streets poster um yeah so you know a couple of those you just don't you don't want to pass up the opportunity you know when they're such you know heroes and idols of yours and you know you sort of test the water beforehand you know make sure uh people are going to be up for that yeah. and uh, you know friendly enough to engage with it but you know um so for you know I was I've been lucky basically Anyone I've idolised as a child and then met later, none of them have broken my heart. So that's, that's good. good. That's good. Were you there for McCartney? Uh, McCartney, yes, I was actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't look after him for that. I think he might have been my first or second episode that I ever worked on. I feel like he... But he... What was interesting about just observing him, so I didn't get to meet him, but I sort of got to observe him doing what he does. Mm. And he clearly just loves it. You know, that's a man, he's got such passion for the music still. And I think that's what's been amazing about meeting some of these people and working with them is how much they still care about what they're doing. Mm. Um, you know, like when the Pythons came off set, they did a re- they were really good together, really funny, really anarchic. And the first thing that they, a couple of them said when they came off set, was that good? Was that funny? It's like... Uh, you know, asking me for, you know, reassurance, a 27-year-old researcher or something at the time. Uh, and it's like, you're a Python. Of course it was. <laughs> of course it was good. But it's still important to them. That's interesting, isn't it? And perhaps yes. you need that to be at that kind of 
to be a Python or a McCartney, perhaps you need that. Whereas I wouldn't ask you to name any names, whether there's current people, for want of a better word, where it's it's not that and it's not quite so important to them. And it's, I don't know, it's a fame thing or it's something else other than the the craft, if you want to be a bit pretentious about it. Yeah, yeah, I'd say, yeah, that I guess, um, you know, because you never know with a younger act, they're going through slightly a slightly different thing, whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, whether they're teenagers and it's hormones, whether it's a weird uh, career insecurity because they don't know where they're going to be. So, you know, in five years. So that can give you a different psychology. But when someone's that established, you know, for the most part, they're really relaxed and comfortable in their own skin. Yeah. And that allows them to, you know, and, to, and because they've got genuine passion for it. And I think time sort of, you know, the longer someone's around in their career, um, time weeds out the ones who don't care, I would say. Mm. Can we talk script writing? Yes, sure. Working with your brother, <laughs> what's that dynamic like? Yeah, pretty good. So, yeah, so um, it's me and my little brother. So we write our scripts together. We direct together. But what we do is we tend to outline the script together, mm-hmm. um, and uh, but then we we take on the draft separately. So whoever's got the most free time at the at that stage will take the first draft, and then the next one will read it, discuss it, and then rewrite it separately. So we just ping it back and forth like that. Yeah. Um, and then so and you know the things that you both like survive basically. You know is what we found, and you can't get too precious if the other one's taken something out. Unless, you know, and you get in those creative discussions about, okay, well, I really like that and that's why I put it in. Okay, well, it didn't work for me for this. Okay, well, what's a better fix for that then? What was I trying to achieve that uh, wasn't working for you, but we know we need it, so how can we get to it? Mm. Um, And sort of just trying to be open uh, with those discussions. And do you have different tastes and different uh, skills then? Is it a team where you bring things separately that that make a bigger whole uh yeah definitely i think sort of taste wise there's a there's a, obviously a lot of similarities because there's got to be but mm-hmm. um in terms of what we consume you know um like my little brother is a you know an obsessive kind of marvel uh comic fan uh not of, of the movies at the very least and um for me i can take or leave most of those films three or four of them that I really like, but, you know, I'm not so fussed about the whole 20-odd, you know, movies and all that. Um, so he brings, the, you know, that kind of sensibility um, in terms of uh, in terms of our taste. But I think in terms of skills, maybe, maybe if I had to sort of define it, I'd say kind of he maybe has slightly more edge on me when it comes to plot, mm. and maybe I have slightly more interest in character. Um, you know, we're both interested in both, but I would say, you know, yeah, he definitely um, a nice, you know, tight plot setups, payoffs, that kind of thing. He's very much into that. Um, whereas I kind of quite like to kind of sort of establish who the character is, write a little biog on them and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I'd say that's the difference. And are you writing all the time? Um, so we're writing. We've, we've always got ideas knocking around i don't primarily see us as writers i primarily see us as directors Mm. who have ideas and kind of and can write but we actually quite like to bring in a third writer um to work with uh sometimes we've we've got a couple of scripts that we've just written purely ourselves at the minute um but um yeah i'd say um writing feels more like a necessity that we've developed a skill for whereas directing feels very natural I'd say, at least for me, my brother might say different. And then when you're working together and directing, then is that literally you both there behind the camera calling the shots or are we assigning different points for, for each of you to do? Um, it sort of, it varies to be honest, you know, if one of us has got slightly better rapport with one of the actors than another, then so we might do more chatting with them. One of us might be by the monitor, one with the crew uh, or, you know, with the cast, it, it can really it can really change, and even even setups to set up scene to scene, it can kind of alter. Um, and because you know, directing is basically answering questions all day. 
um, right. from the various departments. You know, there's a lot of questions, a lot of questions that need answering, and we sort of trust each other um, to sort of not have to keep to micromanage each other. You know, if costume come to me with something, um, unless it requires both of our opinions, you know, or I'm not sure, we don't necessarily need to consult each other. Um, so that's we can work quite independently and together. It's all about having that trust, I think. And it varies from project to project, which is always interesting because I think there's in any sort of field, sometimes people have a way of doing things and they can be quite wedded to it. Other people are much mm. more free. It's it's just I don't think there's a right or a wrong. It's just interesting how different people approach this stuff. I think. Yes, yeah, I'd say again, sort of a slight differences. I'd say he um, would tend to have a slightly stronger opinion when it comes to cinematography mm. than what I do. So if it's like who's going to have final say on a shot, I'll probably let him have it. Um, or you know, if, if the DP say no, you know, we need a I need a thought on this, need a thought on that. You know, if I'm if we're busy, then I can take care of something else in another department while he looks at that. Um, yeah, so it's yeah, it's sort of I just we just sort of let it work itself out naturally, really. Mm. How would you define a success in terms of something that you've made a film? What's the is there an objective for you know where it's seen or the the effect that it has? Um, I'd say how I define a success with with one of our projects is I mean it's it's kind of a little bit of everything really. So how much does it look like what we wanted it to look like? Um, is that what we wanted it to achieve? Has it ended up better than what we thought in some ways? Where yeah. where hasn't it? Um, and uh and then also yeah how well it does you do want that audience approval you know like especially the types of films we make um i think we make you know sort of thing so far anyway we've made a lot of stuff in the kind of horror or in the comedy genre and they're films that you sit with an audience and you know you get the, the audience reaction is visceral so it's not like a drama where everyone can, you know, everyone can fake an orgasm for enjoying a drama, whereas because everyone come out and go, oh, it's yeah, very, yeah, yeah, very good, yeah, it really made me think. Whereas you, you know, you can't fake the orgasm when it comes to a comedy or a horror because it either makes them, you know, jump and laugh or it doesn't. Um, so you know, I kind of, it's kind of that you want as long as it gets good audience reaction uh, and it's close to what we want. If it was something that I felt like was really far from my own vision and mm. um, not what I wanted to make, but the audience had enjoyed it, it would feel like a hollow victory. And what's your view of criticism? How does that affect what you're doing? Um, so, yeah, so it, I guess it, it kind of depends, really. You know, you get, um, I guess, script notes. Receiving script notes is a form of criticism. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that can be kind of interesting, the process that you go through creatively with that. Because, you know, I think you should only respond to the notes that make sense to you. Um, and, um, yeah, so I think you should only ever respond to script notes that make sense to you because you can't uh, enact someone's note. If you really don't agree with it, you're going to do a bad job of it. But what I would say is some of the notes that sting the most and the criticisms you get the most, uh, that, that sort of hurt the most, um, that you don't agree with as well, they can take a few weeks to process, but some they, they sort of enter the back of your mind and you filter it and you come up with your own fix for that problem. Right. Or you or you sort of go, someone says, that, that, this is a problem with your scripts, and you're like, I don't think that's a problem at all. And then like three or four weeks later, you get to it and you're like, there's a, there's a problem with this, actually, <laughs> and I've got a fix for it. And you think you've come up with it yourself, but you go, actually, no, that's me processing their note um so yeah so i think that's you've got to you know if you're going to put something out there you've got to take the criticism uh, for it um and i think it just depends it always depends what it is sometimes if it's just the wrong audience receiving something then you mm. can be like you know and also you, you know uh, on twitter and youtube anything can get slagged off the best thing in the world you know it Six months ago, 12 months ago, there was like something trending on Twitter about Martin Scorsese being overrated. And you're like, if people are saying that, uh, you know, it kind of makes you dismiss it. It, make, it, it, temp, it, it tempts me to dismiss anything 
you know, of anyone's opinion, because what's true, if Martin Scorsese is overrated, then what is true? Because <laughs> uh, that's, to me, that's like a immutable fact of film that he's just the best. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, you, you just have to sort of, you know, take it with humility. Not everything's going to be for everyone. And the nice thing is, because I'm in a filmmaking duo, me and my brother can be our, our critics to each other and to our own work, you know, because you can be a bit more objective when you're, you've not fully made it yourself, you know, you've made it together. So it can give you a bit of distance from it. Mm. So, yeah. And we'll pro- see what happens. See what happens when I get a feature made and, you know, Empire give it one out of five. Maybe I'll say something different. A little bit different. But that's the thing about this creative stuff, because I ask that to pretty much everybody because I just find it interesting. Um, it's like you were saying, there is as many opinions as there are people. And I used to have this thing of if you make something artistic, you must want it to be objectively brilliant. But of course, art isn't really like that. You know, like you say, someone can slag off Martin Scorsese or whatever it is. You know, and that it can be for the reasons that everybody lords it so much. So everyone, you know, it's this counterintuitive thing about doing that. And then, but then it happens the other way. There's stuff that your friends think are fantastic, and you just can't, can't get it, man. You're like you try, and you you respect them. You can understand why they like it. Some things you can understand why somebody would like it, but it's not for you. But there are the occasional things you just don't get it at all. It's interesting. Yes, yeah, yeah, and that's interesting as well from a collaborative perspective. When, like I say, like my little brother loves a lot of these Marvel films mm. and a lot of them just don't really do anything for me. A couple of them do. Um, but that was that, even that's, you know, an interesting process to go through with someone because you sort of go, okay, I get why you like these films and sort of for me to understand why someone, yeah. what they're responding to with those that, that doesn't necessarily do it for me, but it doesn't mean they're wrong. Yeah. And you'd mentioned to me earlier that you have um, another interesting project sort of on the way at the moment can you tell us a bit about that uh yeah so what i'm doing at the minute uh as a little side project i'm producing a podcast um i'm not fronting it i'm not involved in any way sort of um uh, in front of the scenes um but i'm producing a podcast and it's for a girl called rachel naomi who's a uh, online film critic uh and she ran a night called black ink cinema um and they basically what they did was monthly film screenings of of black movies that you know uh, so uh, either which they define as a majority black cast or with a black director behind it you know not necessarily both because you know you look at like the films of Eddie Murphy or whatever ninety percent of which you know have a white director but would still be defined I think by most people's standards as being sort of an example of black cinema. Um, and so, yeah, we've started a podcast where we have guests on. Uh, we interview them about they get each guest picks one specific example of black cinema that mm. has had a powerful effect on them, influenced them, one that they've just really enjoyed and watched more than anything else. And we just, you know, have a little chat and a discussion about it, analyze it. You know, it can go really deep. Uh, in some in some instances, and and in others, it can be completely. Um, frivolous uh you know and and stupid um and you know very schoolboy you know so we, it's a good you know we sort of leave ourselves open to um going anywhere and everywhere where the guest wants to take us uh because i think that's an interesting thing about film and creativity i think the reason why people like say desert island discs is because you get someone's biography through their taste in music um and i think it's interesting getting someone to talk about a specific film and then about themselves and their own response to it, because I think that tells you a lot about a person. And so, you know, I produce a lot of interviews and I just thought that's a, an interesting access point, you know, um, into chatting with people. Um, and so we've got some fun fun guests lined up. We're going to launch it in a couple of weeks. We've, we're just banking the first five yeah. or six episodes. Um, but, yeah, it's been good. You know, we've discussed uh, what we discussed. Inside Man, Glory. Um, uh, what else have we had on there? We've got one. We're doing Deep Cover, uh, the Lawrence Fishburne one, Beast and No Nation, uh, Friday, the Ice Cube classic. Um, you know, so a massive range of films. Uh, cool. And has that had to be done socially distant then so far? So, yeah, we've just been doing that over Zoom at the minute. Um, but hopefully what we're going to do, because their um, their screening nights are about to resume, okay. Um 
what we'll hopefully do in a couple of months' time, we'll start doing live podcast recordings, hopefully with the audience there, so you can screen the film and then we can talk about it on stage after. And what's that going to be called, sorry, the podcast? So it's called the Black Ink Cinema Podcast. Oh, cool. Okay, great. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me. That's been really fascinating. Where's the best no place? Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Where's the best place for people to find out what you're up to and what projects you've got going on at the moment? Yeah, so if people want to find us, uh, we're on hortonfilms.com. Uh, you can see most of our shorts on there. We've just put a short up, actually, um, called Get Some, uh, which is, was like a 15 grand um, short that we made. Uh, it's got Warren Brown in it from Luther. He played DCI Ripley. Uh, John Hannah's in it as well. Um, and actually, we shot that five or six years ago, and then it did really sort of well on the festival circuit. Um, we got it in London Film Festival, uh, and then it was subsequently optioned several times over as a TV series. Um, and we've done a couple of pilots for it, but it's, it's tricky to get it picked up. So we're now looking at going the independent film route with it. Um, but yeah, people can see the full, full version of that um, online. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Adam. Cool. Cheers. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. See you next time on the Robert Lane Creative Careers podcast. If you could subscribe to the podcast, share it, like it, comment on it, review it, tell all your friends about it, all of those things would be fantastic because the more that people do that, the more that new people get a chance to hear the podcast, join the community and enjoy the content that we're putting out. You can find me at robertlanemusic.co.uk and I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram as Robert Lane Music. Please get in touch, let me know if you're enjoying the programmes and who you think I should talk to in the future. Thank you, till next time, goodbye.